Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Once known for technology innovations such as the Walkman, gaming systems, and bullet trains, Japan has long been a laggard when it comes to venture capital and startup success. The world's third largest economy has produced just a handful of tech unicorns, and funding for new businesses has been a relative pittance compared to the massive flows in the US, Europe, or other parts of Asia. It's not that the country doesn't boast its fair share of creative tech entrepreneurs, but the regulatory and market culture has tended to push them to cash out early via IPOs or M&A and limit their global ambitions. A dearth of developer talent hasn't helped matters. More recently, however, there have been some encouraging signs of change in Japan's startup ecosystem. Several major Western VCs and other institutional investors, as well as a growing number of domestic players, have been funneling more money into new ventures. At the same time, the government has been taking a more active role through tax breaks and other measures to encourage startup activity. To help understand the evolving environment in Japan, today we're joined by Paul McInerney, a general partner at Incubate Fund, a leading seed stage investor in the country with over 840 million in assets under management. Paul joined Incubate Fund earlier this year after an 18-year career at McKinsey & Company, where he was a senior partner leading the consumer sector in Asia. Paul, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to join the podcast. Let's start talking about Incubate Fund and your work in Japan. Tell us about the fund and what attracted you to the current role. As you noted, Incubate Fund is a seed stage investor. I joined the fund in March this year, so I'm the new kid on the block. But my colleagues established the fund in 2010, and there are four of them. And collectively, they have 95 years or more of experience in investing in seed stage companies, which is a very specific skill set. What's distinctive about the fund is that real focus on actually creating companies. Uh, There aren't many parallels in Japan of funds of our scale that are focused on the seed stage. Post-founding, Incubate's invested in about 175 companies. Uh, We've had six IPOs to date, but we're excited that over the next three years, we have roughly 20 portfolio companies ready for IPO. And we've also had about 26 M&As as well. Part of what attracted me to Incubate Fund specifically was I've always told colleagues when I was at McKinsey that if they were going to leave McKinsey, they should go into greater deeds. And I felt like Incubate Fund was the kind of premium fund that would be definitely worth joining. Just talk briefly about Incubate Fund's approach in terms of working with the companies it invests in. Yes, it's a very specific approach. We don't think in terms of a pipeline of companies that we're looking at. We think in terms of a pipeline of founders that we're looking to work with. So literally, I haven't seen today anywhere in the organization a list of a pipeline of companies that are going through a set of stage gates. Each individual general partner has a set of about 15 to 20 business ideas of businesses they'd like to create, and they'll have a whole network of founders who are looking to start a company. It's really a matching process. So we'll have a thesis. I'm currently looking at hydrogen, for example. It's a hugely strategic topic for Japan as a country and a really fascinating space in terms of technology. I'm pursuing that. I'll deepen my understanding of that space. And at the same time, I'll have my feelers out for interesting founders in the space. We match them up. We often create the companies together, or we, at a minimum, invest pre-seed or seed stage. We then literally meet with our founders weekly 
for as little as 30 minutes if there's nothing really on the agenda, as long as a half a day or a day if necessary. Uh, but on average, I'd say it's about 30 minutes a week. We've had recent companies go public where we've been meeting with them weekly for eight to 10 years. That's a very hands-on approach. We internally have a team of three headhunters and we have marketers, tech support. How does it compare to your prior role working as a management consultant in Asia? Are there skills that you've brought that really apply? So that was the fascinating part of it. As you can appreciate, it's rare to go from consulting in the sense of professional services directly to the GP of a fund. I think there's probably a reason for that in terms of skill set you build over time. But for Incubate Funds specifically, because you're meeting with the founder literally weekly through all phases of growth of the company, I think what's translated most are probably two things. One is the counselling skills, the ability to help people think through where they are in terms of their aspirations, whether or not the current strategy is going to enable achievement of those aspirations. Obviously, with venture companies, there's a lot of up and downs on a week-to-week basis. And the other thing is classic problem solving within that context. One reason why I was invited to join the team here at Incubate Fund is their aspiration is to create a 100-year institution. They look at a professional services firm like McKinsey that's been running for 95 years, and they felt something could be learned from that. One thing I have started with our associates and our new joiners is just problem solving, teaching them the basic consulting fundamentals. What's been fascinating about that, it seems like it's extremely helpful in their day-to-day roles. I would emphasize, though, that there's a specificity to the way Incubate invests and supports their portfolio companies that makes it a good fit. Was that something you had been thinking about or was it something quite sudden in a way? There was a history there. My first job out of university was to work with a company called Recruit, a publishing company that made the shift to digital quite successfully. A couple of friends left Recruit and founded an online golf reservation company. They stayed at Recruit, but I was on the board. One of the lead investor was actually one of my fellow GPs now, Ako Oda-san. I've known him for 22 years now. He's the chairman of the Japan Venture Capital Association and a very larger-than-life figure in Japanese venture capital. And so there was always that seed from having met him back then when I was at Recruit, I did corporate venture investing. And then over time, I'd run into Akura-san periodically and we'd talk about how I'm going and my aspirations. I'd always wanted to get back into investing in some way. After leaving McKinsey, I wanted to get back into angel investing. But a little bit randomly, really, last September, I ran into Akura-san again and he said, let's catch up. And he had a discussion with his fellow GPs because I'd invested in one of their subsidiary funds a few years back. They all agreed that it'd be a really interesting move. They're four Japanese colleagues and very well known, obviously, in the Japanese market. They're also quite famous for not wanting to add any GPs. It caused quite a splash when they suddenly brought in this Japanese-speaking Australian from McKinsey. I was having a wonderful time at McKinsey, working with clients across Asia in the consumer sector. So it was much less about actively searching and more about just serendipity and an opportunity. What it came down to for me... Over the next 10 to 15 years is an opportunity to learn a whole new craft from some of the very best in the industry. The team that I've worked with, their performance over the last 10 years, it's in the top quartile globally. Let's talk about the environment in the Japanese startup ecosystem. The popular narrative is that the ecosystem is still playing catch up versus China, the US and Europe. Is that largely accurate? And if so, why do you think that is? I think it's fair. I can just give you a couple of numbers. The amount invested in Japanese venture companies last year was just south of $4.5 billion US. Now, admittedly, that's over 7x from about a decade ago. 
in the US last year, full year was 164 billion, and first half of this year was 150 billion. I don't think you could even call it catch up. It's just a totally different league in terms of scale. What I would say that's fascinating though, is growing very rapidly. The nature of that growth is interesting in that the average Japanese IPO in 2020 was $200 million. And that's market cap, not funds secured. In 2020, the average funds secured through an IPO in the US was $300 million. So you're already at a totally different scale in terms of the IPO's size. But two things driving growth right now in the market, and I think you'll see the Japanese venture capital market grow really rapidly going forward. One is that Japanese venture companies are doing an extra round or two because there's much more growth equity available. And also CEOs are realizing that being public as a two to $300 million company isn't much fun. It's very hard to do an offering. If you do an offering and there's dilution, there's little understanding. It's just people saying, well, the stock's down, what's going on? The availability capital is accelerating rapidly. If you look at recent investments, you've got players like Light Street Capital, KKR, Goldman Sachs, Sequoia, have all invested significant amounts recently in Japanese startups. You've got this combination of availability of quality and growth equity with companies also understanding that it's better to do those extra rounds. I think going forward, you'll see the scale of IPOs rise fairly significantly. What is changing internally, whether it's culturally or in the business sector that's starting to move it forward? The founder pipeline, that's one that's changed dramatically. If you look over the last five to seven years, if you look at people leaving professional services at a younger age, there's been this massive shift from heading to private equity, sort of farmcos, large multinational companies. That's shifted to more than 50% venture companies, I think it's fair to say. They have conversations with people leaving, for example, McKinsey. They'll be deciding that they want to join a venture company and work at that end of the life cycle. And then going out and selecting a company based on fit and purpose, especially. Purpose is a big, big thing. In Japan, traditionally, it would have been... The big trading houses, the big banks, the big airlines were all attractive destinations. You had longer careers there. Uh, there was a little bit of a shift. People started doing MBAs and then moving into professional services from there. And then now you're seeing an influx, even straight out of university, into venture companies. That's seen as a much cooler, fulfilling thing to do. So I'd say that's the biggest single shift is the founder pipeline has shifted dramatically. The capital, as I said before, has changed also materially. Japanese pension funds... You literally have some of the biggest pension funds and sovereign funds in the world here. Um, the, the numbers are just astronomical in terms of the capital available. They've been pushed to allocate a little bit more into the venture space. So you have capital coming from outside and inside. The government is starting to understand that creating an environment that's much more favorable is a big deal. So you're seeing really positive shifts in that dimension too. In terms of moving this momentum forward, are there specific things that need to happen? The biggest single thing that has started to shift slowly but needs to continue to shift is Japanese startups setting global aspirations from the get-go. One part of me wanting to really get involved with Incubate Fund was that my career has been built around working regionally and globally. I've seen how much fun that can be and, and how fulfilling it can be. Working with the founders that I invest with to try to set a global aspiration from the get-go and help them think through how to build a management team, how to build networks, how to invite foreign investors, et cetera, enable that. Japanese companies building a global footprint is the biggest piece. I think what there might be a shortage of in Japan going forward is quality seed stage investors because it's a very hands-on, a very labor-intensive exercise. 
you don't have the history in Japan, like the US of venture investing, you don't have that pyramid, if you will, of investors, younger and older, who have a depth of experience. Just trying to deploy the capital effectively in a quality way could be a headache. When you talk about the global aspirations, is that something that in Japan just has not existed as much? People's view of their businesses, if their entrepreneurs has remained fairly narrow or focused just domestically? I think that's fair to say. The US and China are just, the sheer scale of those economies is obviously incredible and the growth has been incredible. But people forget that Japan's the third biggest economy <laughs> globally. So I don't think anyone would complain if a US founder was saying, I'm focused on the US, I'm going to get that right first and I'll think about the rest later. Even though it is a quarter of the US, it's still the world's third largest economy. So you can quite happily have a unicorn scale of impact. If you count it strictly, I think there's been seven unicorns out of Japan. If you take a definition of just one day after IPO, because in Japan there's a big pop on the day of IPO typically, you could count up to 25 unicorns coming out of Japan all largely focused on the Japanese market. So I think just because of the sheer scale of the market, founders have been focused on getting it right in Japan first. So it's made sense. I think that's fair. So if you really want to talk about creating a $10 billion or $100 billion business, and incubate funds, we aspire to co-create the next Toyota, Sony or Honda. And to do that, obviously, the Japanese market alone is not going to cut it at all. So one good example is Merukari. They've now become, I think, the second biggest P2P marketplace in the U.S., I think the market capitalization is just south of 10 billion right now. So they've done very well and they've gotten traction in the US. And the way they built the management team was very deliberate in that sense. People look at that and there's a couple of other success cases that's excited founders about the potential for a whole different magnitude of impact. Um, but it is a recent thing, to your point. Historically, it's been very much, the Japanese VC market's been quite domestic. And recently with foreign investors getting more involved and, and foreign LPs as well, getting very involved with the funds as well, you're seeing a shift of attention, which I think is going to be exciting for the industry. Another thing that observers have noted is the shortage of digital talent still that Japan is facing. And McKinsey recently conducted a report showing the extent of the shortage. And I'm wondering why you think this is still an issue. To what extent you do agree that it's a serious challenge and what the government and the private sector can do to hopefully help remedy it going forward? I saw the numbers from that report. They're quite striking. The number was 3% of the US workforce is classified as digital in some sense and taking obviously similar definitions. I think 1% is the number for Japan. The kicker on top of that, this is a number from a McKinsey report, I think about two years back, is that in the US, there's about a 50-50 split in tech talent between what you might call operating companies or regular companies and system integrators, professional services firms. In Japan, that split is actually 70-30 skewed to professional services, so system integrators. And on top of that, if you think about the 30% of digital talent in Japanese companies, because of that split, and the skew towards system integrators, the talent inside Japanese companies tend to be managing projects as opposed to actually coding. What all that adds up to is a real dearth of talent available to private companies and startups. I don't think this is a simple fix at all, but I think there's two ways to tackle this. One is you're seeing a really steady and increasing flow of talent, as I said before, both from consulting and investment banking, et cetera, firms, but also from system integrators into venture startups. Because you've got this huge pool of talent in those system integrators and they're becoming much more interested in joining startups right now, there's a relatively near-term way to address this that'll allow quite an accelerated uptick in talent availability. 
I think the longer term fix, you have to go back to education. And I'll just give you one factoid, which has always struck me. If you look at the number of certified SaaS engineers in Japan, if you were to create like an index saying, well, what's the number of statistics engineers per dollar of GDP, that ratio in Japan is literally one-tenth of that of the US. When we talk about digital broadly, but analytics specifically, there is a huge gap. And if you then go back and you say, well, what is that? Um, there's one university department in Japan, uh, it's a Tokyo University, that has statistics in its name, if you will. So in other words, there's one university department focused on statistics and advanced analytics. Uh, whereas I think in the US, the number is closer to somewhere around 90. And even in Korea, I think the number is about 20 or 30. You have to go back to education and incentives in that space as a starting point. And that's one area where I think we're already seeing movement. I'm encouraged by what's happening at even the high school and the university level. But that's going to take time, at least five years to see that movement pay off. There's also a more fundamental fix. With the coronavirus and the humanitarian crisis over the past one and a half years, remote work has become broadly accepted. Talking with colleagues in the US, the number of companies are now saying, hey, look, I can get absolute top tier software engineer out of Serbia or Latvia, Vietnam, to work at competitive rates and do excellent work. Global talent pool for digital becomes accessible. Having the more global footprint for Japanese startups is going to help not only with business opportunity, but with the talent bench. So more bilingual management, able to build teams. I'm working with the startup now, my actual first investment, a company called Store Hero. They have a branch in Cambodia where they have an IT school and the graduates of that school will be part of our tech bench going forward. Even anecdotally with examples like that, you're seeing more and more companies accessing global talent. How much do you think technology in terms of no code and AI and data sets can help make up some of the coding challenges and engineering challenges in the country? That's a really fascinating space. People sort of look at Japan, they say it's an aging population, but population decline. It's sort of easy to paint a dark picture if you cherry pick your lens. Uh, but someone was saying to me recently, they said, look, would you rather be a country where, pick a number, like half a million to a million people are coming to the workforce every month? And as a matter of national strategy, you have to figure out how those people are going to be gainfully employed. Or... In a world where robotics and AI are advancing at an incredible pace, would you rather be a country where you absolutely have to use those technologies to the hilt to drive labor productivity? It was obviously a rhetorical question, but I thought it was an interesting sort of take. Yeah, so they're more of an opportunity than a threat. Yeah. If you look at analytics, where I was at McKinsey, it used to be that you'd need five to six data scientists and perhaps one data engineer to get a project going. With the advance in tools and analytics on the data science side, the algorithm building of the platforms, you can spin up amazing stuff in days that used to take months and multiple people. On the data science side, obviously the intensity around data engineering has come up because data cleaning and managing complex data sets has become harder. But that's just one example where the leverage from AI has been like a four to five X factor over time. I think Japan going forward because of the tech talent challenge is going to be really focused on that as an area for investment and growth. One of my own investments is in that space, no-code growth tools. As a country, Japan's traditionally you know, always been very, very strong in robotics. If you look at some of the robotics giants globally, a lot of them come from Japan. And there's a productivity piece to that that's driven. I think you'll see similar developments on the AI, robotics, and no-coding side as well. You talked about a couple of your investments or potential investments. When you look at investments that you're considering these days, 
What has made them particularly compelling candidates for Incubate? At Incubate Fund, each GP, there are five of us, we had a running list of theses. That tends to guide us. To give you a little bit of colour on how we do think about that, because there is a lot of thinking that goes into each individual establishment of a set of ideas. There are a couple of lens we bring. One I think is fundamentally, there is a Japan lens. And what I mean by that is, if we invest in this company and it's successful, what are the elements of the business and the business model that will be defensible over time? In startups, we talk about moats and I don't know what the thing is with castles and battles and stuff, but <laughs> it's like talk about moats, this rich imagery of like building a moat around a castle. There's a couple of areas that come from the Japan lens. One is stuff that's in the national interest. Naturally, there's going to be an impetus to find local companies and investors that can drive that. So Incubate is a big investor in space. Our space portfolio companies now have a market cap collectively of somewhere north of a billion. And they're very early stage, so they're saying something. Cybersecurity, we're doing some really interesting stuff in the quantum communication space. One of the implications of quantum computing is that protecting communications is going to become infinitely harder and you need to bring quantum computing to bear on that problem. So there are a set of things that come with the national security piece. There's a second lens for a subset of the companies is um, service-related stuff. The service piece is real and there's often some specificity to a country that you need to deal with. So obviously with global aspirations, you wouldn't want to do just that kind of thing, but there will be situations where Even a global SARS player can't compete in terms of serving and adapting to the Japanese market. But there's a lens around, this is something defensible here. In the case of Incubate Fund as well, the the ultimate potential scale is something we look at fairly carefully. We pay a lot of attention to the dynamics of the market and if you're going to have tailwinds as the business matures in a five to seven year timeframe is another thing we look at carefully. And also we skew a little bit towards B2B. The B2C seed funding we've done has been relatively limited. We tend to look at big, painful problems in the B2B and B2B2C space and work from there. To echo what we were talking about earlier, how much does the issue of digital talent and the supply challenges influence your decisions? As we look at investment opportunities, it'd be fair to say it's roughly a 40-40-20 or maybe 45-45-10 mix. And what I mean by that is there's something around the market and the potential and we're excited about that. There's an awful lot of attention paid to the founder and level of commitment, how excited we are about either their track record or background. We'll spend up to three to six months, sometimes a year, just playing ball with the founder, trying to understand the market and create a plan together. So we get very deep on how they act and their footwork, etc. Uh, but then the other 10 to 20% will be immediate availability of key tech talent that'll have the capacity and ability to pull in people. We typically try to invest where the CTO and CEO are in place. At least we've got a CTO secured. And we use our internal headhunting teams to really drive that. So we try to secure before we invest that we've got line of sight to building out the tech organization. But I don't think we'd shy away from a relatively tech talent intensive business just because of the lack of digital talent. I think our reputation in the community is such that we can attract the right talent if we have the business idea that's compelling enough to excite people. Right. But you want to have the confidence that you're not going to make the investment and then have to start from zero in terms of getting a tech organization built up. How big a challenge is scaling up for startups in Japan? Is that changing? I think historically, as I said before, the classic IPO in Japan was 200 million. I think the real challenge has been early IPOs 
are much more of a headache than people really understand. As I said, the understanding's shifted dramatically over the past three to five years, uh, and that's going to be extremely healthy. The primary path was an IPO at a small scale, and that's where companies struggle because they go public, they wouldn't have access to a huge amount of growth equity. And then the scaling issue in terms of just the capital availability becomes a real headache. Now, as you do more and more rounds, if you go public as a $1 to $3 billion company, it's a very different story in terms of your ability to fundraise and secondary offerings. So I think the capital problem is basically being solved right now. I think that's fine. Organizationally, the fluidity of talent and the flow of talent in the VC industry is improving year to year. Going forward, the scaling challenge is going to be this global piece. And yesterday, when I was doing this panel, we had in the audience... A friend of mine who's the founder of a company, he reflected on his own direct experience in going global, uh, which was just fascinating. And he said, look, it's a three-piece problem. It's a market problem. Can you get into the markets, distribution? Uh, It's an organizational problem. Can you adapt your organization to do it? And can you get the capital? And he said, in my mind, the capital is solved. But by the way, that's the easiest thing to solve. He said, the organization and the market access are the big things. He said, with the market access, though, more and more foreign investors investing in Japanese startups you're talking about world-class investors who have incredible networks. Uh, so their ability to help these startups get into other geographies is material. So that's good news. And I think the access piece is going to get better over time. Then I think it's the organization. I think what we're starting to understand there is if you start early, and he said, I should have started in year two, like after I founded the company. If you look at Medicati, for example, but from the get-go, basically, the global management team is in place very early after they started. And so his reflection was, if you get started early with just one or two senior management team members who have that global experience, like they're bilingual, bicultural, they have some global experience, he said that makes a huge difference because from the get-go, then you can start to build the organization in a global sense. So I think capital is going to solve itself. The access will get better over time. And I think the people side of it too, we're starting to understand how to do that, but that's the hardest one to crack because fundamentally... If you think on a massive scale, fully bilingual bicultural speakers aren't always easily available. And I think in a previous conversation, you said that that is starting to slowly shift a little in terms of you're seeing more bilingual folks available. Yes, and that's a function from the professional services firms, from you know the big trading companies. We've got colleagues who travel all over the world working in all sorts of locations. The flow from there to the VC space is accelerating. Are there key considerations should be kept top of mind for potential investors looking to invest more in Japanese startups? There's obviously going to be a difference between style and stage of investing. For later stage investors, I think the environment's already really there. A friend was asking a global investor who'd made a very significant investment in Japan recently. And they said to them, like, how did you find the company? And they said, well, we had a simple first filter. We filtered all of the startups over a certain valuation for those that had an English website. (laughs) It's like, oh, Okay, good start. Seriously, there is an element of partnering or co-investing with a VC firm here that has the ability to bridge a little bit with the local organization if the the language isn't perfectly there is one piece of the puzzle. Or indeed, just being cognizant that not all startups in Japan are going to have fully bilingual teams. To be very clear, the excellent businesses, wonderful quality management teams, but they're not all going to be completely bilingual. So I think understanding how to navigate that, or if you're serious about the Japanese market, having at least one individual who can help with bridging. We have LPs who have invested out of Hong Kong and Singapore who have one or two team members who speak Japanese. And so when they've invested in our funds, they're able to interact with the management teams regardless, which takes a lot of the friction out of the systems. The earlier stage in Japan is not for the faint of heart. 
just because the hands-on nature does require there's things you need to do to help you know seed stage startups that require your ability to find and attract people and sit down with a potential CTO and convince them that this is a great idea, etc. I'd say that the language necessity goes up as you get towards earlier stages. The third thought for later stage would be that coming equipped with a value proposition, it's really heating up in Japan. To come with capital is one thing, but to come with a value proposition around market access or talent access or some thoughtful approach to how as an investor you can help, I think would be important. Right now, the ante, if you will, is rising in terms of what it takes to really get quality opportunities. If we're watching the Japanese startup ecosystem and Japanese economy, what are the changes we should look out for? In my own head, as I think about the next five to 10 years and what I hope and expect will happen, a big one will be the scale of capital availability. For Japan in particular, and a really important evolution of the ecosystem will be that more and more companies spend more time growing pre-IPO and going public at above a billion. It's very much a real issue of ability to attract talent, ability to have access, continued access to capital post-IPO. That's one marker that would be really important to look at. How many unicorns are coming? How many companies are able to get that patient capital and spend the time to grow pre-IPOs is one big piece of the puzzle. I think a second piece of the puzzle is how many Japanese startups are going public or growing with an international footprint. The number of large-scale successful cases, I think two, perhaps three to date, uh, I think that number could be an awful lot bigger, especially as you go into deep tech. We have an investment called AI Medical, just an amazing company that does oncology imaging, real-time oncology analytics. And that by nature is a global play. Japan has the world's third biggest stock of patents, tons of exciting technology. That's the second piece. Deep tech, healthcare, whatever it is, how a company is translating that business to global. And a third thing for me is the environment. I'm hopeful and expectant that you'll see the Japanese government and the relevant governments at different levels continuing to accelerate the attractiveness of the ecosystem for investors and founders. There's already steps in that direction. Through our role at the JVCO, we've been working with the government on a number of pieces in that space, and we fully expect that that'll continue to become even better over time as well. If you think on a different level about your work at Incubate and Incubate as a whole, where do you see that in five years' time? And how will you judge your work a success at that point? It's an exciting time for Incubate. Our last fund closed in December last year. It's our fifth, our flagship fund. That was $250 million. The fund before that was 110 You're seeing that the track record over 10 years has paid off to the point where we fully hope and expect that we'll be closing a billion-dollar fund within that time frame, fund six or seven. It's just a sheer capital, ability to deploy capital piece of it, which I think is probably less important than our own personal aspirations, which, as I said before, it's really the next Sony, Toyota, or Honda. And in that sense, in five years' time, our biggest hope would be that there's picking up a five to six companies coming of our portfolio that show that potential. I would love to be involved with one of those companies that scales in that direction. Shifting the number of companies that do think global from the get-go and providing, in a strange way, role models of companies that have thought about the global piece early and have started to build deliberately in that direction is one piece on how I'd like to contribute. There's an internal piece too, helping people grow, bringing whatever experience I have 
people talk about McKinsey as a leadership factory. I'd love to bring the learning to help build an organization that is a hundred year institution. And we're happy to give you a 10 year time frame to get some of those big things done. Really exciting time for changes in the startup ecosystem in Japan. And it's great to hear about your experience and your perspective on how things are evolving. So I just want to thank you again for joining the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Well, that's our podcast. I want to thank our great McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Zamorowski. And finally, thank you as always for listening. We hope you'll return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.